Hey, so this is a big week for the church, in case you didn't know that. Um, church, Big C Church as a whole, this is leading into Holy Week. Um, and, I mean, technically kind of every week's a Holy Week, but you get what I'm saying. It's, it's a big uh, week for the life of the church. And so what we want to do today is we have next Friday coming up a Good Friday service, or this Friday coming up a Good Friday service. And as preparation for that, we thought it would be cool to spend today, Friday, um, connecting to Easter Sunday. So that way there's a little bit more context and some continuity behind, what, behind and between what we talk about. Um, and specifically, uh, this week, there's a lot of activity. And depending on your background, there's different levels of activity. For some of us, we came from churches where it was just, you know, you had church before Sunday, and then you had church on Sunday, or church, you know, the Sunday before, and then you had church on Easter Sunday. Um, I grew up in an Episcopal background, so we had, this was Palm Sunday, and so all the kids, you know, showed up, and we got little palm fronds, and it was sweet, and you made them into crosses, and then, you know, you poked your sister with it, because it was kind of sharp on the end, and um, then you went to church on, on Wednesday, and that was Ash Wednesday, and so, you know, everybody, like, rubbed ash on your forehead, and then you had a contest afterwards to see who could keep their ash on the longest, and so you'd be, like, walking in publics afterwards, and you kind of, like... I'm spiritual. You know, where's your ash? And by the way, um, we're not having an Ash Wednesday service, but if you want to go light a piece of paper on fire, rub it on your forehead and you'd be like, yeah, I just, I just love Jesus. It's unbelievable. Um, and then there's, for some traditions or for some churches, um, they do this uh, service called Maundy Thursday service, which my dad would always say, is it Maundy or is it Thursday? So cool dad jokes. Anyways, um, Good Friday, Easter Sunday. Uh, But what I want to talk about specifically subject-wise this morning, and we're going to pick up kind of along the narrative of the last couple hours of Jesus' life, um, is is, is what happens uh, to this one individual in the story leading up to the passion, the story leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, There is a guy who I honestly over the last several days have just like... I have just started to really geek out over this one particular guy, um, and you're going to see him in the story, and, and it's one of those, those almost subplots in the entirety of the narrative, because there's so much happening, there's so much complexity that happens, but here, here's what I'm hoping that we're going to learn today. We oftentimes, as people, buy into this idea that to be of significance, you have to do something extraordinarily significant, that to be of significance... You have to do something of extraordinary significance. And the problem with that is as well-intended and as kind of intuitive as that seems is if you live a life of regularness, and by regularness, I don't mean that you're bland or you're boring or you're vanilla. Come on, you're you're in here, and tomorrow morning, as much as you love Jesus, you're going to get up and you're going to go to work. For some of you, your parents, you know, with young kids like I am and no matter you know, how much you love Jesus, you're going to wake up at 2 a.m. because your kid just threw up in the bed. And then you move them into your bed, and then they threw up in your bed and all that. So, by the way, that happened last night. So pray for me, pray for my wife, pray for our whole family. But, um, and stay away from me too. Just kidding. She just coughs. Um, <laughs> I just need to vent for a little bit, guys, just to be honest, you know. No, so, you know, no matter what happens, you know, you're, you're going to go back and you work and you're a nurse or you work and you're a teacher or you work and you're an accountant or you work and you're a lawyer or you work and you're getting your degree and you work and you're in middle school or high school or you're perhaps in elementary school, you know, but no matter how much you love Jesus, you go into the normalcy of life. Perhaps you're a stay-at-home parent. Perhaps, you know, you're one of a hundred different things, but you aren't the person in life that runs the church. You aren't the person that stands up on Easter Sunday and gives the sermon. You aren't the person who's the ministry leader. You are a Christian, 
But you have a job that would not be titled with spiritual significance. And the problem is, is 99% of our church is in that category. And we oftentimes buy into, in order to do something significant, or in order to have a life of significance, we have to do something extraordinarily significant with my nature of life and responsibility almost immediately disqualifies 99% of us. So in the story, in the text, we're going to read a story that is, is leading up to the Last Supper. And as this happens, there's a guy who enters, who enters into the equation. To get us rolling, we're going to be in Luke chapter 22. In this story, it's titled The Plot to Kill Jesus. That's how you know things are getting real. 22 verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. Now, big religious uh, festival, uh, similar to now in, in, in the Christian thought, we have some big days, we have some big events, we have some things that are disproportionately more emphasized than others. They had some, spe- some special and significant big events. One of those was called Passover. Um, Passover was essentially a commemoration of what happened in the nation of Israel lots and lots and lots of years ago. We're going to talk a little bit more about that on Friday, but they would, they would all show up for this big meal where they symbolically um, did some things that show the time that God basically passed over the nation of Israel. Um, If you were going to be saved from the judgment of God and that God was going to kill the firstborn of every person who didn't have the blood of the lamb put on the doorpost. And so if that's all all like a lot of religious texts that you're not super familiar with because you're brand new to church, you just need to know this. This was a big meal, okay? And as they're going, they're about to prepare for the meal, But this meal is a little bit different because this is the meal. In fact, this is what will be the last supper. This will be the last supper that people would paint for centuries and centuries and centuries to come. This will be the last supper where they would have communion, which would be the first communion that we would then go forward because God was about to create a brand new dynamic. God was about to bring a dynamic that you no longer have to sacrifice animals to feel like you're in God's good graces. There will be a sacrifice made for you. And his name will be Jesus. And that will create a totally new dynamic. Or as they would say, it, a new covenant, a new relationship, a new contractual, a new relational, a new dynamic between God and people. And this dinner would be the dinner that would institute the entire thing. And so they're getting ready for it. The last dinner that Jesus would have with his disciples. Verse 2. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Because at this point, Jesus was gaining some notoriety. At this point, Jesus' ministry, he would heal people, he would feed people, he would teach people. He was gaining momentum, he had a lot of momentum, and so people knew who Jesus was, they knew who this teacher was, they knew who this rabbi was. For some of them, they believed that he was, in fact, the son of God. Verse 3. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot. Who was, one, who was of the number of the 12, which is just kind of interesting in and of itself that the guy who betrayed him would be the one who was closest to him or one of the ones. So verse 4, he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed and gave him money or agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd because here's what they knew. You betrayed Jesus 
and you arrest Jesus in front of lots of people, and a revolt happens, especially when it came to a meal like this on a day like this, because everybody was gathered together, everybody was in the same place, and everybody was about to celebrate. And it almost, almost has a pause in the narrative. He stops, and Luke stops and says, okay, now let me tell you how they prepared for the meal, which is where we meet our fella. Verse 7. Then came the day of the unleavened bread, a.k.a. Passover, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. So Jesus is talking to those guys, he's, you know good leadership point. He's disseminating or he's, he's delegating some responsibility and say, fellas, I need you guys to go get the, the Passover meal ready. You know, go kill the lamb and all that stuff. And if you're, you know, vegetarian and he was sustainably raised on a, you know, grass fed diet, I'm sure. And, you know, anyway, so he went to go kill this lamb and they were about to go eat it. But he says, let me give you some instructions on how to do it, which is where we meet our guy. This is what happens. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He, Jesus, said to them, Peter and John, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. And the crowd went, ah. Oh. Let, me, let, me, let me tell you, I love this water guy, okay? We're going to call him a water guy as opposed to a water boy because that's kind of degrading. But he says, okay, you're going to go to a place. You're going to go into Jerusalem. Jesus, where do we go? How do we, how do we you know, do this thing? Because Jesus knows that he is about to meet with them. He's about to totally change the dynamic of their relationship with him. He's about to totally change how they relate to him. I mean, it's going to be an absolutely catalyst of a meal. So he says, how do we prepare for it? And he says, I want you to go into the city. I want you to find a guy carrying a jar of water. <laughs> I'm going to see a man about a horse is essentially what he's saying. I want you to go and I want you to have this conversation with him. He's just going to show you basically how to get there. Now, this guy carrying a jar of water, let me give you, let me give you his bio, okay? We know almost nothing. We don't even know his name. We're just going to call him Steve because, you know, shouts out. Um, by the way, if you're in here and you're Steve, then you just, you know, revel in that this morning. But so our water guy named Steve uh, was a guy who was interesting because there's only two ways that Steve could have gotten in this position. Carrying water in their day was never a man's job. They lived in a different side of society, different culture, but no men carried water in their day. That was strictly, you were either a woman or you were a slave. And those were the only two people culturally that would carry water. But for some reason, my man Steve is carrying the water. Perhaps he's a slave or perhaps he is subservient to almost every single person, every other guy that's around there. Yet, Jesus says, I want you to go and I want you to find this man carrying some water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is this guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. Now, as we're reading through that, no one, I don't think, at least I don't think anybody, is listening to that and be like, oh my gosh, that's, that guy's just so significant in the story of God. But let me, let me, here's, here's what I love about this. Let me tease this out some. This is a guy who is about to play a critical role in what will be the story of God. 
This is a guy who is not doing anything of significance except for being faithful in what he is already doing. And God could have chosen anybody and say, you know what, this is a really important meal and this is a really important task and I want to make sure we get to the right place, that there's, we're going to have this place, you know, and it's going to, they're going to lead you to the upper room, which lots of people would know about the upper room, and they're going to have a meal that's there. And I want this guy to be the person that goes to this place, but here's all you're going to know about him. He just carried a jar of water. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking, man, there is such a strong parallel to us. Because in the story of God, we aren't the main player. We aren't the main conduit. We aren't the main thing. Jesus is the main thing. Jesus is the author. Jesus is the perfecter. Jesus is the terminator. But he allows us in the, in the normalcy of our lives to be people that meet people and show them the pathway to meet with Jesus. Dude wasn't doing anything special. Wasn't doing anything significant. He wasn't, you know, on his way in his, in his water jug, and he was actually going to baptize 500 people because he was so spiritual, you know. And he wasn't going because he was going to do this, you know. No, no, no. This was a guy. He was like the intern's intern's intern. He was at the bottom of the totem pole. And God could have said, you know what, I want to have actually the worship leader come and do this. I want to have actually the pastor come and do this. I want to have the community group leader come and do this. I want to have the person that is just so extraordinarily spiritual and has so much responsibility. God says, no. I want the guy carrying the jug of water. They said, hold on, guy? He said, yeah. Would have been easy to find because there weren't a lot of guys carrying a jug of water. But I want this guy who's carrying a jug of water to be the one that leads them to the place where I'm going to meet with my disciples, that I'm going to meet with my people, and I'm going to change the entire narrative. Here's what I found. We feel like that is oftentimes a place and a position of insignificance. But it is a place in a position of such extraordinary significance. We feel like, at least I feel like, and I have felt like in the past, especially when I was younger and as, as kind of I was growing and I was a Christian, and, 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 and here's how we say it, man, I just want to do something big for God. I just want to do something so extraordinary that people will see Jesus. And it's not necessarily this, this uh, self-absorbed thought and this self-absorbed idea. But man, I just want to do something so big for God. And so we create this narrative in Christendom that in order to do something big for God, you have to have a huge crowd. Or in order to do something big for God, you have to do something that's just almost, you know, it's almost unwise. You just, you're going to go to another country and another place with extreme poverty and you're going to live and that's the only way that you can do something big for God. What I love about this story is this is a story of a guy who's just carrying a jug of water but he is about to play a role that he's going to meet the disciples, show the disciples to a place where God is literally going to change the game and all he does is carry his jug of water. When I was growing up, in fact, when I was in college, 
remember thinking, man, I just want so many people to come to know Jesus. Here, man, I, you know, you kind of think and you pray what that would be like. And man, if, if we could, if, if we could just have everybody at Florida State, you know, just it filled Dope Campbell Stadium and then I would give a sermon, you know, of course I would, you know, I would give the sermon and, and you know, and then at the end with every head bow and every eyes closed, you know, and then like the entire campus would get saved. And I'd be like, oh, it's just God, you know, I'm just so humble, you know, or, or, you know, I, you know, I want to do this thing and I want to have this people and I want people to come to know and you just think big, 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 big. But here, let me just tell you, here is what I found out. God loves interceding. In fact, I would say almost all of God's intercession is in the mundane, in the normal, in the everyday, in the by and by, in the jobs, in the responsibilities, at the workplace, in the cubicle, over lunch, with roommate, in class, with your brother, with your sister, with your mom, with your dad, with your daughter, with your son. We always want to look for God and say, God, I want to do something big. God says, you know what would be big for me? If you would just be okay with playing an absolutely critical role of carrying the water jug. You see, this gives life. Because for some of us, no matter, again, how much you love Jesus, you're going to go in Monday morning and you're going to have your reports and all your spreadsheets or you're going to have, you know, your accounting, you're going to have your QuickBooks up or you're going to go in and you're going to have your, you know, online business or you're going to go and you're going to have your nursing stuff and you're going to look at charts or you're going to go in and you're going to actually leave here and you're going to go and you're going to have your study session or you're going to leave here and you're going to go and you're going to have lunch and then someone's going to take too long and you're like not going to be a Christian for them for a little while, you know, then you return to Christianity when you drive home, but then somebody cuts you off and another sermon for another day. But here's the point. I would love to be a part of a church that embraced every single aspect of that. I mean, come on, can you imagine? Can you imagine this guy? All he's doing is carrying a jug of water. And as he's carrying this jug of water, God is about to show up on the scene. The son of God is about, in fact, God himself, Jesus was the fullness of God in whom the fullness of God dwelt. John talks about how Jesus was described and God on planet earth is about to be crucified that no one saw coming and he is about to have a dinner where he's gonna talk and he's gonna say some words and for the rest of eternity, there are going to be churches that gather together over the rest of the world's existence. Who knows, you know, so it's like next five years, you know, but for the rest of the world's existence, the people, churches are going to gather together. And as they gather together, they are going to celebrate this meal. They are going to take bread and do what Jesus says, break it and do this in remembrance of me. For the rest of Christendom, they're going to take a cup of wine or grape juice and they're going to drink it. And they're going to say, this is my blood that is shed for you. And God is about to say, I am going to do something entirely different. There is a new covenant. There is a new relationship. And a relationship dynamic is not based on your morality. It is not based on your good works. Your relationship with me is now simply based on the fact that I am going to make a sacrifice for you. And it's your trust and your faith and your belief in that sacrifice as the totality of what is necessary for a relationship with God and totally change the game. And God looks at the guy carrying the jug of water and says, and you're about to play a critical role though no one's ever going to know your name. All I want you to do is just do what you're already doing, but realize what you're doing in the story of God has extraordinary significance. I love the writer's response. 
as they hash out on the back end. You can, you can always tell how big of a deal something was by how, what the response is. Verse 13. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. <laughs> not, they don't even attach it out as, as significance. They're like, yeah, and it happened. That's about it. You know, we went, yep, the guy carrying a jug of water. We're like, dude, why are you carrying a jug of water? He said, don't worry about it. It's a long story. And then he just kind of, you know, walked us to the place. And we, yeah, we, and it happened. But, but here's why I love that. We are not the star of the story. We are just the water holders. We're just the water boys. We're the water men and women, okay? We are the people that God has just saying, your job, your responsibility is not to be the star. It is not to be the innovator. It is not to be the person who reaches through. It's not to be the person who breaks through. It's not that you have to adequately and purely be able to articulate your faith in a compelling way in 30 seconds or less that all of a sudden the entire world can say, no, no, no. All you have to do is in the by and by of what you are all already doing be able to lead people to a place where they're going to meet Jesus and then it's Jesus job to do the rest it's his job to do the rest I love that I love that thought process I love the minutia of that I love that that God is saying man I have invited you into my story and so perhaps you're a mechanic and in your mechanicness, you think you're just doing oil changes or taking off somebody's alternator or putting on a new carburetor. I don't you know what I mean. You're, you're doing something and, and, and you're changing tires or you're, you know, you pull up, pull up, pull up. Perfect. We all get it. It's not perfect, but, you know, whatever. Only Jesus is perfect. It's spiritual. Um, but in this process, he said, man. Your job, your responsibility is to be the person that carries the water. Your job is to be the person that nobody might know your name, that nobody might know my name, and that for eternity, the name of Ben, the name of you, the name of DCC will not reverberate through the corridors of heaven, but the only thing that will is the name of Jesus, and it's the only one that should. But sometimes we are an extra in the show of God, and we try to act like we're the main attraction. And so we think, do something huge, do something big, do something that people will see and people will know. Here's what I found, actually. It's the opposite. That as big of a deal as next week is, as big of a deal as Easter is, as much people that we're going to have gathered and we're planning for and we're preparing for, we've got a lot of fun things that are happening we're putting out more and more chairs. We're going to get everybody on, you know, the, the, the 10 o'clock and the 1130 and the 830 services. And, and we're, we, we understand. But as big of a deal as that is, our church is nothing if we are not faithful in the everyday. Anybody can put on a great Easter. But who's the person? When you're at work. And you know something's going on with somebody else that works with you or is next to you. And you're slammed busy. But you feel a prompting of the Holy Spirit. That I need to help lead this person to Jesus. Maybe they already know Jesus, maybe they don't. But it's not like a specifically salvific way. But you just stop and say, hey. I noticed something's wrong. Is there anything I could do? Is there anything I could pray for you about? That's it. You're driving down the road and someone comes to your mind and you're thinking, man, I just need to pray for them. Do, we, do, do you stop 
And do you pray? You're with your kids or you're with your family and you are in the minutia and every day and the who's picking up and the who's dropping off and the who's doing dinner and what are we having and, you know, who bath time and bedtime and story time and all that. Do we stop? And do we have conversations that lead our kids into the presence of God? Let me just tell you a pet peeve of mine that I've found. We oftentimes don't because we rely on the program. We rely on the Easter Sunday as parents. We can rely on not leading our children spiritually. We can rely on the kids' ministry to do that. But it's the everyday. It is the ebb and flow. And I don't know what your water jug is. I don't know what your job is. I don't know what your family is. I don't know what your class schedule is. I don't know what your roommate, you know, dynamic is. I don't, I, I don't, the, the applications are so extraordinarily different. But here's the last thing I'll say about it. If you're in here and you're wrestling with faith, you're unsure about Christianity, you're unsure about Jesus, not really in it, perhaps interested Here's what I would guess about you. You might be different, but here's just let me make an assumption. Perhaps for you, the reason you're not a Christian isn't because Jesus isn't real. It's because you saw Christians who didn't live out the call of obedience and faithfulness in their life in the everyday. And so you saw Christians who were hypocritical. You saw Christians who went to church on Sunday You saw Christians who didn't stop and care. You saw Christians who didn't stop and pray. You saw Christians who didn't stop and give. You saw Christians who didn't stop and help. And so what you saw was a bunch of Christians who thought, I'm going to do something huge for God and never stopped to carry the jug of water. This is maybe a silly way to end this. But a few years back, I had some buddies who, um, at their house, they had this sign over the, uh, the kitchen sink. And if you are, guys, you could probably identify with this. Girls, I don't know what your living dynamic is like because I'm not a girl. I never live with girls, my wife and sister. But anyway, not at the same time. <laughs> I, I love them both, but that would not happen. Um, so a bunch of dudes living in a house. You can imagine the kitchen is like the most clean place in the whole house, right? Um, it was filthy. And they had a sign over the kitchen sink. And it said this. And this was, this was so simple. But I thought, man, this, this is exactly the problem. It said, everyone wants to change the world, but nobody wants to do the dishes. <laughs> I thought, I'm glad I don't live with you guys because I also don't want to do the dishes. But I thought, man, what would it be like? I mean, come on, honestly. What would it be like for an entire church to get this? What would it be like for an entire church 
to say, look, we all want to change the world. We all want people to know Jesus. But in the everyday, in the small things, in the details, in the things that I want to do, and the things that I don't want to do, I am going to holistically embrace that God has called me, no matter where I am, to be diligent with that, to be excellent with that, to be hardworking with that. And God has called me in the minutia of everyday life to usher people into a place where they can meet with Jesus. You see, this is the point in the sermon where it gets towards Easter, and I made the connection that, hey, by the way, next week, place that you can be able to meet with Easter or meet with Jesus, and they're going to be going to church anyways, you should have them come here. Let me tell you, I care about that, but I literally don't care if we don't do that every other day of the week, every other week of the year. That should be the attitude of the church, because this water guy did not know it was Holy Week coming up. He knew there was an unleavened bread coming up. It was kind of the normalness. He didn't know the game was about to change. He didn't know the covenant was about to change. He didn't know the dynamic was about to change. He didn't know communion was about to change. He didn't know, in fact, baptism was about to change in its symbolism. He didn't know any of that stuff was happening. He was just doing what he was supposed to do and met some people and ushered them into the presence where they were going to meet with Jesus. Steve, Rolando, Bob, Phil, Ramon. We don't know what this guy's name is. But that was his job. And it's ours. I got a microphone on. I get the dynamic of this. But what's your water jug? What's your water jug? What's your everyday grind that God has called you to embrace holistically and use to help people see the pathway that they're going to meet with Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you so much that you are a God who invites us into your story. God, we get to play a significant but insignificant role. We are not the main star. We're just the water boy. The water man, the water woman who embraces the vocation, the calling, the place, the space that you have called us to be. And we simply understand that it's our job not to do something huge, not to do something gigantic, not to do something of such extraordinary significance that the entire world takes notice. You have called us to do little things with great love. You have called us to do small things with extraordinary faithfulness as we usher people to know you. Because God, you so love the world, you sent your only son to die for us. That we now have a relationship with you, not based on our own good merit, not based on our own good work. And I pray that you would help us, whatever our water jug is, whatever our everyday is, to usher people into your presence where they can have a life-changing, game-changing, Jesus-changing conversation. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.